And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them to another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyards to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is God's word. You may have a seat. Well, good morning again, guys. My name is uh, Sean. If I don't know you, I'm the lead pastor here, primary teaching pastor for Redemption Peoria. Um, Before we get into our passage real quick, I I just wanted to say something uh, that John had brought up, and I said it last week, so I'm going to say it again. Uh, You know, a comment that we get a lot is that our church is really diverse um, as far as age group goes, Um, and because of that, I I think it provides a lot of opportunities um, for us to have no excuse to not be able to, to serve together. And so something John had mentioned, when we go to two services, um, I did the whole guilt thing last week, but, but when we go to two services, the reality is, um, and some of you have kids who kind of have been out of the nest for a while now, and you would be really great to help in the kids' ministry. And, and some of you are college kids, and, and we don't want you around our kids. Um, and, and you would be really great to help set up and break down every Sunday. And so um, can you put up the connect number real quick? So here's what I'm going to say. There, there really are three pushes that, um, and I didn't see this go up on the screen. So I, I need you, if you are one of those people, to text this number, 623-850-4690. Text the word connect. One, if you want to get involved in a community like John had mentioned. But two, if you want to get involved in serving one way. I see zero phones coming out. So I'm hoping you're memorizing the number uh, right now. Okay. So, so that, that is uh, something I, 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 mean, I really want to piggyback on what John said. If you call this place your home, let me just be super candid with you. Um, we are not about just doing the church game, right? So if you're here, be here. Like, be in with us, serve with us, like, get messy with us, do the hard work with us, okay? And, and instead of being a consumer, like we tend to be in all other um, spheres of our life, 
be in this church. Don't, don't just kind of serve from a distance and yes, uh, okay, no, here, be with us, lock arms with us so we can do this together. Um, and to be honest with you, some of you have kids and somebody watches your kids every single week and maybe you can step up and do that. So another guilt thing that I um, hope to continue to put on you. If you haven't already opened Mark chapter 11, um, here, here's the deal. Uh, I didn't know that, John, wherever you, I, I didn't know we'd been 30 weeks. This is our 30th week. That's crazy. Um, we've been going through the gospel of Mark for uh, 30 weeks now. And from the very beginning, we said um, that we want to go at the gospel of Mark because um, Mark is going to tell us what Jesus is about and is going to tell us who Jesus is. And so as we open up to Mark, we're almost towards the end of this book. So maybe you're coming on the scene now and, and, and you're like, okay, well, I'm kind of picking it up mid-movie. I don't know what's going on. So a quick recap. This guy, Jesus, comes on the scene, and over and over I've said the people don't know who this guy is, but we as readers do know who he is. And, and it makes it a really interesting story because we're seeing, how do you not get this? How do you not get this? How do you not get this? The demons know who Jesus is, but, but the people interacting with don't know. Until you get to Mark 8, the middle of Mark, almost perfectly in the middle of Mark, Peter makes this declaration, and then we find out, oh, all the people see who Jesus is, but now Jesus is not doing things the way that all those people want him to do things. And so now we find out Jesus basically declares, I have come as the Messiah. I live to die. And, and I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And what we found is... Um, as he's doing this, he is calling us to that. Mark is this rugged disciple. The symbol I brought up before is for, for, the, for uh, uh, the gospel of Mark is a lion. It's calling you to no holds bar, put your hand to the plow, don't look back, either follow Jesus and stop playing games or get out. I mean, that's honestly what Mark is putting in front of us. Follow Jesus to the cross. Know who he is. Be with him on this journey. Deny yourself. This is what he puts in front of us over and over and over again. And then we found out two weeks ago that he's not doing this because he hates you. He's not doing this because he doesn't want you to, to have joy or happiness. But rather, he is calling you to deny yourself, even though every other area in the culture that we live in tells you to do things because it's about you. Jesus, being the exact opposite, says denying yourself ultimately will be the greatest thing for you. You will be the greatest if you serve in the kingdom that I'm trying to put in front of you. And so there's this juxtapositioning of the kingdom of God versus the way that the world does things. And if you want to be great... And I don't mean great standing on a podium. I don't mean great having statues built after you. I mean if you want to be the greatest human being you could possibly be, then it is following Jesus in all that he tells us to do. It, it, it is where ultimately we fulfill what true humanity is all about. And from there, um, we ran into to this, this uh, little interaction between Jesus and the people of God at the time. And this is last week. And what happened last week is Jesus randomly sees some, um, some plant life and just decides to blow it up, right? And so he sees this fig tree. He says, there's no figs on here, even though the story is pretty specific. There's not supposed to be figs on there. Jesus goes, hey, uh, I didn't get figs from you. You're going to wither up and die. And he curses this, this uh, fig tree. And it was random. And what we learned was in this passage that that fig tree was a representative of Israel. And as Jesus is coming into the temple right after this, what he's showing us is that Israel has been showing, hear this because this is a big deal, has been showing that they have life. Like, like they're, they're putting on the show. They, they, they have the greens and they look like they're alive like a fig tree, but they have no fruit. They, they have no fruit. So what good is an apple tree that doesn't produce apples? I mean, it might provide shade. It, it looks nice, 
But an apple tree is called an apple tree because it produces apples. And so in this moment, he, he, he looks at these people, the people of Israel, the people of God at the time, and says, you're putting on the show. You're hiding behind systems and sacrifice. You're hiding behind fasting or coming to church or your good works. You're hiding behind these types of things, and you cannot be on either side. You cannot, in this moment, pretend to have life but live how you want to, nor can you hide behind your good works. Now, today is part two of that. You have to understand what Jesus is doing and walking into the temple is causing a lot of ruckus. And so this is part two of that. Um, This is uh, traditionally about on Wednesday. Uh, If you know anything, the, the Friday of the Wednesday, that Friday, Jesus is going to be crucified. So we are slowly making our way to the cross. And this is, a Wednesday, this is a, a Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, if you're familiar with that whole story. This is a Wednesday as Jesus continues to interact. And, and all of chapter 12, we're going to get in chapter 12, is an interaction between um, the, the, the leaders of Israel and Jesus. And it's the last time we're going to see these interactions, okay? Um, so let, let's go at it. I'm going to read, if you, you're not familiar with how we do this, um, I can only get in the way of the Bible. I, I want to be like... I'm going, we're going to read through this, and I'm going to do my best to explain this, and I'm going to try to walk us through this, okay? But the Bible, what it's going to do, has all the power. It's what's giving us faith. We're going to read it, and I'm going to try to unpack it. Hopefully, it provides faith in life within us as Christians so we can see what it, likes, what it looks like to be fully human. Um, so the first two verses I'm going to read and explain a little bit, but then I promise we'll pick it up after that. Um, This is this last confrontation. So Jesus just rolled through the temple, kicked over uh, tables. He's super pissed about how all things are working in this temple. He does not like what's going on. And so he's looking at people saying, how dare you jip this person? How dare you you do this? And have you never read the scripture in Isaiah? This is the the, the house of God is supposed to be a house of prayer. It's supposed to be for the nations, but you've made it about yourself. And after he does that, he's still kind of walking around in the temple, right? So you're like, what is he doing here? Um, And they, Jesus and his disciples, came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, I want it just very quickly. I want it so we can set context with these first two verses. Um, These chief priests, elders, all these people are um, something known as the Sanhedrin. Okay, this is important because the Sanhedrin, maybe you've heard that term if you grew up in church, is um, a governing body of elders over all of Israel. Now, um, Israel does not have it like America has it. Okay, we have this divide of church and state. Israel does not have that. Um, matter of fact, the church, the religious body, rules the state within Israel. Okay, now Israel's is subject; they're, they're under the ruling of Rome. But anything that goes on with the people of Israel, the Jews, is made up, is decided by this group of people. This group of people being the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. This is where the Pharisees come from. This is where the Sadducees come from. It's about twenty-four to seventy-two people who decide. If, if I can correlate it, and there's a lot of flaws in this, but this is like the Supreme Court. Okay. This is Jesus. He's been dealing from state to state, doing his campaign, healing all these things, going to Washington, Arizona, New Mexico. And now he finds himself in, in, uh, uh, in Washington, uh, no, not Washington State, in Washington, D.C. And, and now he's starting to deal with the higher-ups. And as he's dealing with these higher-ups, we're going to see a lot of conflict because these higher-ups don't like what Jesus is all about. So, so that kind of sets some, some uh, context. And then one more quick thing for us to explain this, this uh, continuing verse in 28. And they said... Uh, uh, to him, uh, by what authority are you doing these things or who gave you this authority to do them? Okay, let's stop real quick. Talk fast, so let me break this down real quick, okay? Break you down. No, um, that was a crossover. Um, I, don't, I don't know why I did that. Um, I don't know why I did that. Um, 
what was I talking about? Okay. Um, okay. So, so Jesus is walking in the temple. As he's walking in the temple, uh, these guys come up, the, the Sanhedrin, the people who run, run this nation come up and say, hey, Jesus, what authority do you have to come into our temples, kick over tables, and we know that they're talking about temple because it's referred to in, in John 3. What authority do you have to change things? We run things around here. Okay, now I need you to hear this. This is, this is the mood in which the question is being asked. We really do run things around here. Who are you to come in? By what authority do you have to come in to tell us that we're wrong? Now, this is a big deal. Because they are not asking this question sincerely. If you were here very early on in the the Gospel of Mark, you will remember they already know by what authority Jesus is doing it. They think Jesus is doing all these things by the power of Satan. If you remember very early on, he's in one of, let's say he's in uh, El Paso, and he's dealing at people in Washington, D.C. Hear about this guy, Jesus. They send these leaders down. They see what Jesus is doing. The day they see Jesus, he happens to heal this man of a demon. He casts this demon out. They look at Jesus and go, yeah, he's casting out demons by the power of demons. They've decided by what power Jesus is doing these things. They've decided by what authority Jesus is doing these things. They're not asking the question sincerely. Matter of fact, they haven't once asked the question sincerely. Not one time throughout the Gospel of Mark, do you have a people, hear me, for the love of God, please hear me. You, you, you can come to these questions, um, or you can come to Jesus and ask these questions and, and maybe put up like, yeah, I'm asking, but, but man, I, I would push in front of you li- like these religious leaders. Um, are you sincerely asking, like, Like, do you recognize that the questions you're asking, are you really asking by what authority? And here is Jesus being asked this question by them. What authority? What authority do you have to do these things? And and here's the thing. Jesus is taking their authority from them. You're wrong the way you're doing it. But who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to tell them they're wrong? Who is Jesus to tell you what you can and can't believe? Who is, by what authority does Jesus have? I mean, this is the air we breathe, a, a polytheistic culture, that Jesus is one way, but not to Jesus. To Jesus, he's the only way. Now, by what authority can Jesus claim you're wrong to look you in your face and say, what you believe about that is wrong? Who is Jesus to say that? By what authority does Jesus have to say that? And this is what he's doing to them. You've built systems, you've built structures, you've done all these things to look really good, and I'm blowing that thing up. Um, uh, Luke Simmons, the lead pastor for Redemption Gateway, uh, sent me a blog this week, and it was basically about um, this guy who writes a blog um, to pastors about leading a church, and, and the question was posed in this blog, how long do you think you can do church without God? Like, how long can you lead a church with, with, without God? And I wanted to re- read you real quick um, an excerpt from, from that, a little piece of the blog, because I think it's helpful. Um, I'm going to read half of it now, and then I'm going to revisit um, this. So I don't know if they broke it up. Uh, looks like all things are up there. So um, we'll just, I'll read part of it, and then we'll revisit this um, quote in a second. This is what it says. Israel created an elaborate and efficient church that ran very well without God. The priests and Levites excelled at their roles. The sacrificial system was geared towards handling, hand, to handle the crowds at Passover efficiently. And the Jewish people knew their needs were, uh, were met with consistency and care. 400 years after God stepped away, the Jews no longer missed him. They had created a church without God. So I said, we're, we're going to stop for a second. I, I need us to revisit the story of, of Israel. Okay. Um, now listen, 
I, I know that there's this weird thing with the church. Some churches like are super all about Israel. And, and if you're from the outside, you're new to Christianity. You're like, what is the deal with this people Israel? Why are we all about like protecting Israel? Okay. Um, and, and the reason is it's not even really about Israel as much as, as it is that God chose Israel um, and chose this, this nation to be his people. Okay. Now here's what happened in this story. As God chose this nation to be his people, he sent people to try to correct them over and over and over, but they would not get it right. And so God punishes them over and over and over again until eventually, um, uh, if you, you're not familiar with the Bible, the Old Testament, part one of your Bible, and the New Testament, part two of your Bible, um, the, the, old, the, the Old Testament, part one, ends with this book called Malachi, okay? Um, and at, it's four chapters long. And at the, the end of that fourth chapter, you pick up into Matthew 1. And maybe some of your Bibles just go straight from Malachi to Matthew. Maybe some of your Bibles actually say, uh, have this little page that says the New Testament. But here's my point. That little page or that gap between Malachi and, and the New Testament is 400 years, 400 years. Now, the reason that's a big deal is there is 400 years for the people of God where God says nothing. They don't feel him. He doesn't send them prophets. They feel alone. They, they feel like, is this dude real? And so what they do is their, their inclination, their knee-jerk reaction is one of, well, let's build systems. And so they figured out, hear me, how to play church. They figured out what to do and how to do it. They figured out the religiousness to it, and they slowly became temple disciples and not God's disciples. They became temple witnesses and, and not Jehovah's witnesses. No, I'm just kidding. That's terrible. Um, I know. I, my, okay. Um, so, so from that, this is what Jesus is pushing against. Verse 29 Jesus answers their question. So let's get at, at this. They ask, what authority are you doing these things? Jesus answers the question. Well, kind of. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. So um, if you remember early on, there was this guy, John, who came and prepared the way for Jesus. He's pointing to Jesus saying, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. The Jews, the, the, the people, the Sanhedrin, the governing authorities look and go, no, John, you're wrong. Well, here's the problem. The crowd really likes John. The Pharisees, the, the, the leaders really don't because John is bringing this good news to these poor, broken people, but he's looking at these religious leaders and he's calling them like groups of snakes. He's calling them all kinds of names, this brood of vipers. He's looking at these people and saying, you're wrong. And so the, the, the Jews do not like, or the, the leaders do not like John the Baptist. And so Jesus, a, a kind of a, a rhetorical tool, and this is a pretty common rhetorical tool for, for dialogue back then, answers their question with a question and says, okay, tell me this. Um, did John the Baptist come from man or God? Now here's where, where they're stuck. If they say he come, came from God, then they have to admit they were wrong. If they say he came from man, then they're afraid of the crowd, and, that, and the crowd believes that John the Baptist, so, so they're stuck here. They're stuck here. This is beautiful. Now, he goes on. We'll, we'll continue. He goes on, um, and Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Um, every single week, um, all the teaching pastors for redemption, we get together on Wednesday, the, the uh, Wednesday that we do is 11 uh, days to study or 11 days to come together. It's called the preaching collective for the, the two Sundays out. 
Does that make sense? So we have, we have a preaching collective to talk about the passage 11 days from that moment on that Wednesday. I have no idea if that makes sense to you. But the point is we get together and talk. And there was this overarching tone to the preaching collective as we got to this point that Jesus is just legit. Like, how crazy is this guy that he sits back and hears this question and can quickly, like, within his God mind, like, totally break down some things. Like, uh, you know, he's, like, breaking it down here. What's, uh, you know, Target sucks. Kmart sucks. What's that movie called? Um, I don't know. Anyway, uh, there's a movie where someone's really smart. Um, uh, Beautiful Mind. Let's go with Beautiful Mind. So he's breaking, breaking this thing down, breaking what's going on, interacting with him to ask them a question in such a way that they cannot answer. And they have to concede and go, we don't know. We don't know. And then Jesus goes, well, I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do things either then. Um, I want to stop, though, because I know it doesn't say here this in this text, but, but I, I really need you to hear how Jesus could answer this question. He, okay. Here are people who are running the church at that time, and they're asking Jesus, who do you think you are? And, and right now, I'm, I'm getting ready. Right, Josh and I are going to be going through the book of Hebrews. And it's amazing to me in the book of Hebrews how much over and over Jesus is talked about and said to be greater than everyone else in the Bible. He's greater than angels. He's greater than the prophets. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the law. I mean, we've seen this over and over. We're, we're told in 1 Peter 3.22 that he's above angels and authorities and all things have been subjugated to him. I mean, I've quoted over and over in Colossians 1.15 through 19 that he is the visible image of the invisible God Through him, all things are made that are made. Without him, nothing is made. Whether visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, powers, all things are through him and for him. And hear this. In him, all things are held together. Not not will be held together. Not we're holding. Right now, the very skin on your body, all things. What's great about that? All things. It means all things. All things are held together. He's the head of the body, which is the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead. Here's Jesus, and they're asking, who do you think you are? Hebrews 1.3 says that he upholds the universe. The universe by the word of his power. The, the, the solar system you are on right now, he holds it by the word of his power. Nehemiah 9.6 tells us that the fish in the sea and the birds of the air, he alone perseveres. It says in, in Isaiah 42 that he holds the oceans in the palm of his hand, and he measures heavens with the wits of his fingers. Heaven is this big. Who am I? Who the H-E double hockey sticks are you? That's a 90s term. The L's. The hockey sticks are L's. I'm going to get in trouble for that. Now, in case we missed all of that, at the end of Jesus' life, Jesus is going to be standing with his disciples After he just raised from the dead, he's going to be standing with his disciples. And in case anything was mixed in terms, in Matthew 28, 18, it says all authority, all authority, all of it, all authority has been given to me. And here are the religious leaders, here is me and here is you, really beginning to wrestle with this idea of why Jesus? Like, what authority do you have? Now, um... Jesus doesn't outright answer that, but I feel like if I was Jesus, that's what I would say. Um, but that's neither here nor there. But, but here's, here's what, what I want to say this. As he answers this, um, 
the, the premise of this idea of this conversation is that, that these people, like sometimes you and I in our lives, are not willing to submit to that authority. That's the point of what's going on here. Now, Jesus is going to tell us why he just cursed Israel. He's going, we're going to get out right now. This is part two of what we talked about last week. Why did Jesus curse that fig tree? Why did Jesus say, hey, people of God, you're doing it wrong? Because they're not willing to submit to, their, to, to Jesus, who he is in his authority. And then he's going to break down this parable. Let's keep going. I'm running out of time. Um, we're going to go into chapter 12. Moving into chapter 12, let's read this parable. I'll try to get through it as fast as I can. And then we'll, uh, we'll finish up. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruits of the vineyard. So we're getting more into to fruit. Now, I know this sounds like a weird way to start a story, but the Jews are very familiar with this. This is actually almost word for word in Isaiah 5, where, where um, God talks about Israel as this vineyard. He plants it. Now, this is a, a pretty common contract back then. And actually, even today, I, I know a guy who um, runs an almond farm, but he doesn't own, own the land. It's in California. He doesn't own the land, but he, he, um, the guy owns it. He leases the land and gets to keep everything that grows on the land. So it's like paying rent, and you get whatever comes from the land. And so what's happening in this story is there's this man who plants this uh, or who, who owns this land, digs the holes, plants the vineyard, and says, hey, listen, you can live here, live off the land, but I want the fruit that grows. I want to get my portion of that fruit. And so he begins, he takes um, what they know of Isaiah, Isaiah 5, he know, they know this story, and he's going to add on to it. And this is where it gets buck wild. This is what it says um, in verse 3, as the, the servant attendants go to get some of the fruit. Verse 3, and they took him, this is the servants that went to go get the fruit, um, his portion of the owner's fruit. This guy sends them away. The servant goes and gets it. They took that servant, beat him, sent him away, empty-handed. Verse 4, again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and, and, uh, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Verse 6, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. Now, first of all, at at what point do you go, this guy's out of his mind. He's sending somebody over and over. Hey, maybe this will work. Hey, maybe this will work. Hey, maybe this will work. Like you're going, what are you doing? Like why this perpetual over and over and over again um, until eventually, okay, they, they didn't listen to any of my servants. I'm going to send my one and only son to them. Maybe they'll listen to him. And, of course, they don't. Verse 6, he had still one another, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. So um, we see what, what happens is the same thing to the son happened to, to, to the, the um, servants before. Verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. So I need you to hear the story because I'm about to explain it. Well, Jesus is responding to the fact that they will not submit to their authority. He's talking to these religious leaders, and he says, you know what this is like? This is like a dude who plants a, a vineyard. He plants this garden. And as he plants this garden, he, he, he deserves the fruit that grows from that garden. He's letting the people stay in the land for free. They didn't do anything. They didn't build the garden. The man did all the work. They're living there. The fruit belongs to him. And so he sends somebody and they kill him. And he sends somebody else and they kill him. And matter of fact, it says, and I quote in verse 5, and so with many others. It's not just these three servants, countless servants. Over and over and over sending servants, trying to get the fruit that rightly belongs to the owner. 
And because they don't, he sends his son. They say, aha, if we can kill his son, we'll take all the fruit. We'll get the inheritance. This place will be ours. So they kill the son. They throw him out of the vineyard. Jesus asked this question in this moment. What do you think should happen to those tenants? Like, what would be fair to those tenants? He's asking the religious leaders this. Now, um, he directly answers. um, Actually, it's almost debated whether or not they say this or he says this. But the answer is, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. But the parallel passage in Matthew 21 that's telling this exact same story gives us details as to how these religious leaders answer. This is what they say. He will bring those wretches, Matthew 21, 41. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end. They hear this story and go, yeah, that's ridiculous. That's absurd that they, that God, like, like in that moment, this man would not get his fruit. So, so Jesus lays this out. And then I love this. This is beautiful. Verse 10. Have you not read uh, this scripture? The stone that, uh, that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Uh, that, uh, this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Verse 12, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Verse 12, and they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. What does this parable mean? It's clear that they immediately know, they imme- and maybe, maybe we're missing it. But this fruit is the people of God. And, and over and over and over, um, God had sent prophets. He had sent one servant after another, and some they beheaded, some they stabbed in the stomach, some they sawed into two, some they hung over and over and over, bashing their heads on rocks, um, exiling them to die over and over. He sends these, these prophets in the Old Testament. Maybe you've heard their names. The Ezekiels, the Isaiahs, the Jeremiahs, people who weeped and tried to plead with these people. Listen, you guys, if we don't turn around, if we don't get our game right, if we don't fix this thing, then something bad's going to happen. He loves us. He cares for us. We're told in Ezekiel 16 that it's, it's like a man who adopts his daughter and cares deeply, but she continues continues to run off over and over again. And they're perceiving this, right? And they're perceiving what's going on. And then it, then it gets worse because then they're perceiving that this parable specifically, they're the tenants. They're the one who has killed the prophets over and over and over again. And they're the ones who are going to kill the son. But he makes this little statement here that, that I think is um, pretty helpful. And, and I want to stop and, and study it because some of you might have heard this before. Um, uh, if you, you, you're raising t- any type of Christianity or just read through your Bible because it appears a couple times. Um, in verse 10, he says this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Verse 11, your reformed theology hopefully can help you navigate a lot of those waters because in, in the midst of all this, this is God's sovereignty. He is doing what he's doing with Israel. You see this in, in Romans 9, 10, and 11. He, he's doing what he's doing. We don't know fully what he's doing, but it is marvelous to God. But, but more importantly, what I want you to see for now, specifically today, is that Jesus in this moment calls himself the cornerstone. That Jesus is this cornerstone. And I, I, I would venture to say that not a lot of us know what this cornerstone is. It's actually talked about in First Peter, in Acts 4. Um, Jesus is called this cornerstone a lot. He's actually quoting Psalm uh, 118, I believe, here. Um, so, so let me just explain so maybe some of you can know what, what a cornerstone is, and you will see the beauty of what's happening to the, 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 the Jewish people, the people of God, and I pray that we would not make the same mistake. 
Uh, the cornerstone, and I, for the love of everything, I hope I'm right. Um, um, the cornerstone of everything I, that I've read is, is this stone. I was even going to bust out a picture that starts in the corner, um, the cornerstone. And it is the first stone that's laid ato- uh, uh, upon this foundation. And it is the very brick. It's usually a, a larger brick than the other bricks that all the other bricks build off of. Okay? So if you can, for a moment, maybe think of a tile. Like when, when somebody who's laying tile, they, they usually will start in a corner and they're going to lay this tile in this corner. And as they lay this tile in this corner, all other tiles are based off that tile, right? So they're going to put a tile under here and here next to this, and they're going to build off of those tiles, right? So imagine if you can, um, uh, that tile being put in the corner slanted. Well, you wouldn't put that tile slanted and then build. No, you would put that tile slanted and then all the other tiles are going to base where they are off of that original tile. Jesus in this moment is saying he is the cornerstone and all other stones are based, are found to be straight because that cornerstone has to be perfect. Because if that cornerstone is crooked, if you try to build on a a, a crooked cornerstone, everything else is going to be crooked. And what Jesus says here in this moment is, as he declares in Luke 24, 27, as Paul tells us in Acts 28, that all the prophets, that all the law, Everything has been trying to point us towards Jesus. They've all been talking about Jesus. Hebrews 10.1 says that the law is a shadow for Christ. That the cornerstone in this moment, everything is built. But here's what Israel's done. They've tried to build on a crooked cornerstone something other than Christ. And the fruits of that, or lack thereof, is because they've tried to build on something else and now everything is kind of cattywampus, right? Everything is kind of off, it's, it's, it's crooked and, and it's not working to, to the degree that it should. And, and the building that Jesus looks at in this moment goes, that's wrong. You've tried to build on something else besides Jesus Christ. Hear me when I say this, hear me. Jesus in this moment is saying, I am the one that sets the temperature for all other things. I am the one that everything else needs to be aligned. If it does not line up with me, it's wrong. I'm the cornerstone. So you may get the building right, man. You may come to church. You may know how to say the language, terms like missional, community. You may know how to do this. You may know all the church jokes. You may even have the Bible memorized in the order of which the books are. You may have all the games right. But if you are missing Jesus, you're missing it all. The building is crooked. Now, now here's, um, I, I sense this feeling, even as I was going through this, for Jesus, this absolute authoritative, this is my way, it's my way or the highway. If you're not with me, if you're not lining up with me, you're wrong. I think sometimes our heart, and maybe for some of you, if you're not a Christian, very specific, I want to talk to you for a moment, because you feel like that is, um, that's a, a huge lack of tolerance, and it absolutely is. It's this, well, we're not this way. No, no, Jesus is claiming in this moment, I am the one that everything else is built off of. And so we go full circle, don't we? We go back to what we had talked about two weeks. That Jesus is not looking at you and I and saying, if you do not base your life off of me, I'm going to curse you and punish you because I want you to, to, to live a crappy life. No, no, ladies and gentlemen, hear me. He, he is in this moment thinking for your utmost joy. He is caring deeply for you. It is crazy. Please do a word study in the Bible on joy. Tell me over and over, you do not see, like in John 14 and 15, that if you would follow the Lord's commands, your joy would be full. And yet you build brick after brick after brick. You are doing things. This is fun. This is exciting. But eventually you're going to wake up and go, what am I doing? What what am I doing with my life? 
whether it be in sex, whether it be with money, whether it be with people, whatever it is, you continue to try to build something without Jesus Christ being the cornerstone, and you find yourself in a situation that is not full humanity. So let me read something from a man, Spurgeon, because I think it's appropriate, um, and because it's almost canon. Um, when God, this is what it says, Char- Charles Spurgeon, when God sends his son to plead with men, remember he does not urge us to, uh, to, to do anything which will be for our loss and detriment. Obedience to him is happiness for us. He does not urge us to follow a life of misery, nor to begin a course with, um, which will end in our destruction. Far from it. The ways in which he would have us run are ways of pleasantness. And all the paths in which uh, we, he would lead us are paths of peace. Even repentance is charming sorrow, far more sweet than the joy of sin. They that repent and turn to God through Jesus Christ find such joy such happiness that earth becomes to them the entranceway of heaven. To, pursue, per, to persuade you to be holy is to introduce you to be happy. To urge you to seek God is to urge you to seek your own best welfare. To urge you to say, lay down the weapons of rebellion and be reconciled to the Most High is to set before you the wisest, safest, and best course that you can follow. So Jesus in this moment is looking at the people of Israel like he's looking at us and going, you can try to build your life on anything. You can try, but if it is not on me, you are only going to find pain. So he doesn't hate you. That's not, he loves you. He loves the people of Israel. He weeps, he weeps over the people of Israel. Why? Why are you doing this? Why don't you come to me? I'm trying to give you your fullest joy. But we run, we flee. So um, there's a couple things with this, and then I'm going to pray. Um, the first thing is this, if we, if we would not make the same mistake of Israel and that we would recognize that not fleeing from the cornerstone, of not basing our life around the cornerstone, if that would bring our most happiness, it would bring our most joy, that if we would do this well, um, our job of mission, being around people, we become what God intentionally, very specifically had for Israel. And that is they were to be a people that all other nations were to look to. So hear me, people would look to you and see what true humanity is to be fully human. But then more than that, um, I want to give you application because I haven't done this well. So how do we do this? Like, how do we not become like the people of Israel? How do we submit to the authority of God? Why do you over and over have the same sins week, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year? Why do you continue to fail? But but how do we even begin to combat this? How do we even begin to go at this? Um, I want to give you a quick answer, and I'm not saying it is the answer, but I I hope it would help. Um, And and, and hear me till the end uh, say this. Um, You have to intentionally, intentionally, because the, the wickedness of our hearts, the proclivity of our hearts to choose not God, you have to intentionally make time for the most important and not the most immediate. Hear me when I say this. Um, there's always going to be another meeting. There's always going to be another show. There's always going to be another game. There's always going to be another time. There's always going to be another party. There's always going to be something. There's always going to be something. Work will always be there over and over. And if you do not intentionally make time for your soul to remember the most important thing, because the reality is all of us, if you're a Christian in here, would admit 
the, the, the caring for my soul is the most important thing I can do. Uh, taking care of my soul, um, uh, working my spirit because the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. And if I can continue to cultivate a love for Jesus Christ, I will be a better husband. I will be a better father. I will be a better worker. I will be a better friend. I will be a better family member. I will be a better neighbor. You know that's the most important thing, but you let the immediate truncate the most important. Now, um, here's the problem with that. You will fail. (laughs) You will fail. You're not going to read your Bible every day, man. FYI, you're not going to get it perfect. Some of you yelled at your kids on the way here. (laughs) I did. (laughs) Like, 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 you're not going to get it right. You know what's crazy about this parable? It's timeless, man. Like, think about this. Jesus looks at these men, in, these, these men who are in leadership in this moment, and he tells them that they are um, accursed. A, a he, he tells them that God is removing the vineyard from them because they have killed all these prophets, right? He, he's, he's looking back in time. But they're so mad that, that he says this about them that they, hear me, I want to read it again before we close, um, and they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the men, for they perceived. They're seeking to arrest him and kill him because they perceived about this parable. So hear me, they haven't killed the son yet, but because of the parable in which they tell him, tell them he's going to kill the son, they kill the son. That's like some Neo dealing with the Oracle in in the Matrix, knocking over the pot stuff right there. That's like, if he doesn't tell the parable, do they kill the son, right? Like he, they're mad because he's speaking directly against them. They know this, but more than that, Jesus knows when he tells this parable, he's telling it about himself. And that not one moment as he continues to talk with these men, does he flinch as he takes another step towards the cross. Not one moment does he go, well, the son's going to die. The son is me. I don't want to die. No, no, no. Hear me, guys. Um, He knew and he knows exactly who he was dying for. And if you think for a moment that it's you getting right to come to Jesus Christ, you're doing exactly what Israel did. If you think I can get it right and then I'll be good enough for Jesus to save me, you're missing it. Jesus died for you because you were a sinner, not because you got it right. And in this moment, you want to show fruit. You you need to absolutely, full wholeheartedly rely on what Jesus has done for you. Matter of fact, Romans 5, 6, some of you know this, that, that um, Jesus died for you yet while you were still sinners, right? You, you know this. But, but some of us forget that immediately after that in, in uh, verses 7 and 8, it says, uh, he, he died for us for while we were still sinners in verse 6. Um, some, for, for scarcely, some would die for, for a bad man, right? Some people, I mean, maybe, probably not die for a man. Maybe some people would die for a good man, most likely for a righteous man. But Jesus died for us that while we were still sinners, like, like you're, you in that story is not getting it right. It's that Jesus in this moment lays out this parable and says, the reason you're not getting it right is because you're trying to get it right. <laughs> Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that in this story, in this parable, um, we see images of ourself. We see the fact that the people of Israel... Um, they're rejecting you because they think they don't need you. And our heart's proclivity, I know mine, is doing the exact same thing. 
Like we're thinking that, that we, we, uh, we can get it right or we're thinking we, we have it all together and we're thinking we, we, we may know cognitively that we need the gospel, but at a heart level, um, we're, we're a good person. Man, have us flee from that wickedness. May you come and take all the fruit. May, may all glory be given to you. May, may, may we recognize that you planted the vineyard, that you dug it out, that all of it belongs to you. May we not make the same mistake as Israel. May, may we not be a people um, of religious activity that, that uh, refuses to, to, to uh, miss God in it. I love you, we praise you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.